0: new magazine out, uh, The Day of the Lord, is, the, is one of the uh, articles, the top written after Brexit, and why human life has value, very important. I was listening to the news, and uh, it was interesting, the, the way that they portray all the politics of it all, it's that uh, when it comes to the economy, the Republicans are ahead, when it comes to the border, the Republicans are ahead, when it comes to abortion, the Democrats are ahead. Now, this is not political i 'm just saying the way it is, so in other words, hooray, we want to kill people, and that 's why we 're ahead in that particular area we want We want to murder all the way up to the ninth month and i can 't believe that they all believe that, but nevertheless, what a world we live in Wow we 're ahead in the polls when it comes to killing babies it 's remarkable it 's a strange world in which we live today and Of course, that's just a little bit of the whole big picture of of our world. We have a very good article also in the upcoming Living Church News, the one that will be coming out after the Feast, November, December. very good article by Mrs. English on women's dress. And I really encourage all of you ladies to be sure to read that article. She puts it in a way that... I think really puts it in perspective of how we are to, how our ladies are to dress and why they're dressed that way. So I hope you will uh, read that and take that to heart. Uh, We had the announcement for the feast, but sometimes just a cold announcement, and I don't mean that to put down the announcement, I'm just saying that sometimes without a lot of context to it all, it just sounds like, well, we're giving instructions, but she really goes into the... Uh, whys and wherefores, and it's in the woman-to-woman column that will be coming out. Uh, I believe that's in the... I think I've got that right. It'll be coming out, I think, in the Liv- Living Church News. Maybe it's uh, something else, but I think that's what the one it is. You review all these things all the time and read them, and it's hard to keep track of everything. Near the end of his life, Dr. Meredith encouraged us to do good works. He wanted to see the church doing more good works. And this past week, Mr. Richard Ames brought the subject up at our executive lunch. But most importantly, God tells us that we are to be diligent to do good works. So what are we to do? What does that mean in practical fact and in practical uh, living? Are we to volunteer? At the local food kitchen? Are we to help build houses for the poor? Should we volunteer to sing at a nursing home? What exactly does God expect of us in the context of doing good works? Well, in today's sermon, we'll explore what God, what God's mind is on the subject and what we can do in practical ways regarding this expression, good works. And for those that like titles. It's that they may glorify your father in heaven. That they may glorify your father in heaven. There's a difference between attempting to save yourself by your works and living a life of good works to glorify God and help your fellow man. Now this is somewhat of a side point, I suppose, to the whole thing. It's a, in preparation for things that come later. But what does it mean when someone accuses us of trying to save ourselves by our works? Certainly that has been an accusation, a false accusation, an incorrect accusation that has been leveled against the church down through the decades. They say we're trying to save ourselves by our works. And what do they mean by that? Well, what they mean by that is that we keep the Sabbath. And the idea is that God had nine of the ten right, but that's not bad, nine out of ten for God. But he got that one wrong about the Sabbath day. Or that we keep these festivals that we're keeping that we're entering into at this time. Or that we do certain other things, we keep the laws of clean and unclean meats. Those the world looks at as saving yourself by your works. On the other hand, picking up trash on the Sabbath is not salvation by works. And so when the Worldwide Church began to come apart, there were actually congregations that adopted highways, and it's not wrong to adopt a highway or a section of a highway, but they would do so on the Sabbath day, an in-your-face gesture, as it were. In reality, those who accuse us of salvation by works are guilty of the very thing they accuse us of. An example of this, and I've brought this out before, is that you have people who say, well, if anybody is ever a Christian, then my Aunt Susie is, because of all the things that she does. She is a wonderful example. But we could turn over to Mark, the first chapter, so basic. We read it, we're familiar with it. I probably don't have to point to it, but I will. But it is interesting interesting that this was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what it tells us in verse 1. And then in verse 14 it says, After John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel, that is the good news, of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Notice, Repent. And believe in the gospel. Now, the gospel that is taught by this world is a very different gospel than the one that we find in Scripture. It has parts of it. We are to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We are to believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. All of that is part of the gospel in the in the grand sense of it all. You cannot take Christ out of the gospel because he is the king of the kingdom. But notice What it says here, the kingdom of God is at hand. And we have a wonderful booklet on the subject, the booklet on uh, Do You Believe the True Gospel? It's good to review it. I've just finished reviewing it here recently. And you can always pick up little points that you've forgotten or that maybe you never quite recognized before. But what's amazing is how much of the New Testament talks about the kingdom of God. And all of the parables that Jesus spoke, so many of them were about the kingdom of God. I guess all of them were ultimately. But he said the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, saying the same thing, is like. And he said that over and over again. And so when you think about your Aunt Susie, that's a wonderful Christian, you have to ask the question, Does she believe in the gospel? That's what Jesus said. And has she repented of sin? And if she's keeping a different day, if she doesn't understand the true holy days and observing days that are found in paganism and just the whole, you know, the whole big picture of it, is she truly a Christian? Has she repented of sin? And we understand that God is going to give everyone a chance ultimately And the last great day of the feast addresses that, and we'll be reviewing that during the feast. And so we understand that big picture. I'm not trying to give the whole big picture right now. But the question is, is a person saving themselves by their works because they are a nice person and a very caring person in a lot of ways, and those are good qualities. Certainly nothing wrong with those qualities, but is that what it's all about? The book of Ephesians... The first chapter, I'm sorry, the uh, second chapter, of Ephesians. I remember Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to explain this many times uh, because this is used to say that, um, that we are saved by grace, which is true, but that works are not important. And yet he says here in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now we believe that. Absolutely. There is nobody here that is good enough to save himself by his law keeping or by his works, whatever they might be. We cannot do that. It is by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. Notice it is not of ourselves. It is not something that we work up. It is a gift of God. God is the one that gives us that gift. He says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's where they usually stop. But verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice that we should walk in good works. So God wants us to produce good works. It doesn't save us. Our works are not going to save us. Uh, if we keep the law perfectly but break the law once, the penalty is death. And without Christ's sacrifice, obviously, we have no chance of, of salvation. We have no forgiveness there. So let's move on to a couple of verses that would seem to contradict one another when it comes to good works. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, the first one is Matthew 5, and both of these passages are found in what we call the Sermon on on the Mount, where Christ, really it was the heart of the gospel, his instructions here Chapters 5, 6, and 7, so important here of the the message that Christ gave to mankind. But in verse 13, Matthew 5 and verse 13, it says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. So he says, we're the salt of the earth, and we are also the light of the world. A city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. So you don't light a lamp and then put it underneath a bed or under a basket or something so you can't see. But on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. And then in verse 16 it says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So here's a passage of Scripture that Jesus gave that said, don't do these things to be seen of men. I'm sorry, it says, do these things that they may see your good works. And the end result is to glorify your Father in heaven. But when we go over to chapter 6, and begin in verse 1, he seems to say the opposite. Don't do it to be seen by men. Notice verse 1, Matthew 6. says, Take heed that you do not your charitable deeds before men. Don't do it before men. Now, that would seem on the surface to contradict what he said there in verse 16 of chapter 5. Just across the page for some of us in our Bibles. He says, Otherwise... Verse 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. I think it was brought up here not long ago that this is one reason that we have historically, traditionally in the church, not... Uh, made a show of prayer when we eat a meal outside in a restaurant. Uh, there are certainly times when we, we might. I know that when I was in Canada, whenever we went to, the, um, to a restaurant with our auditors to discuss what they were going to be checking. These are the ones that work for us, not the government. And uh, discussing what we need to look at. Uh, they were very religious people. In fact, the the lead man used to come down to Hilton Head every every year to play golf. But he would always ask the blessing on the meal. And we would certainly bow our heads, and I think a time or two uh, we offered to do so, knowing that that's what he was going to do. And there are those situations, but historically we've not done that because we're not trying to make a show. It, It depends on... The circumstance. It depends on where you are in the world. There are a lot of things, but a lot of different circumstances. But a lot of times it's religious virtues, virtue signaling in reality. And we pray and we thank God for all of our blessings, for our meals, and we do that in private. But he says here, but you, when you pray, go into your room and and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, of course, we are here as a religious service, and we have the example of Solomon and, and of Christ even. You know, Christ, when he had a, an audience, and it was a very, I might say, for lack of a better term, religious or uh, believing audience to some degree, uh, a religious audience certainly, uh, then he gave thanks in that situation, as we often do when we are in a group situation, we return thanks. But in a public place, we uh, often do not do that. But he says, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So we have two different passages one is Matthew 5:16, where it says uh, not to uh, do your works, I'm sorry, it says to do your works that before men that people will see, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then we have this other example where it says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. So how do we reconcile what would appear to be a contradiction? We know that Christ does not contradict himself. He certainly would not in the same message there. So what is the difference? Well, let's go over to 1st Timothy and we'll notice something that is helpful in this regard. 1st Timothy, the fifth chapter. And we'll start in verse 24. 1st Timothy 5 verse 24, it says, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. He's talking a little bit in the context of verse 22 where he says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. And then he has that statement in between about drinking a little wine as opposed to just water in that uh, time and uh, the travels that Timothy was doing. Uh, for his stomach's sake, he had some stomach problems there. But we see here that he's giving a warning there that, look, some people can look good on the surface, but as you get to know them, you find that their sins may be hidden more so. So some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. But then in verse 25, it says, likewise or similar. The good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. They cannot be hidden. And good works eventually will come to the fore, if it is, as we shall see, a way of life. Good works begin with good conduct. And good conduct is not going to be hidden. My wife... Walks with a couple ladies, several of the ladies in the neighborhood each morning, or at least most mornings. And it's evident over a period of time to others that she doesn't use the language that one or two of them do. And they're not awful, you know, as far as language goes, but uh, every once in a while a certain word will come out that shouldn't be said. But they notice that. And I would bet that if you are on a construction job, anyone that is, and I, I know that there are a number of you in this room who work construction, they also notice that you don't use the same language. At least we hope you don't. Um, I used to know an individual that uh been in the church 20 or 30 years, and, and uh, he did use that kind of language from time to time. Go fishing with him, and you find that out. But for the most part, we know that there are many faithful individuals. I'm absolutely convinced that many of you, especially if you've grown up in the church and you're out there on the job, and I know we have a number of people who work construction that way, that they notice that you're different. You can't hide it. And your neighbors probably know that you go to church every Saturday and you leave the house at 1230 or 1 o'clock, whatever it might be. They notice those things. They see those things, and you cannot hide those things. Good works begin with good conduct. And let's notice that scripturally. James, the third chapter, James 3, and we'll begin in verse 13. James 3 and verse 13. He says, If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Verse 16, James 3.16. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So he's talking about behavior here. He's talking about attitudes of mind, self-seeking, bitter envy. He says where envy and self-seeking exist confusion and every evil thing are there but the wisdom that is from above is first pure then peaceable gentle willing to yield willing to uh, let's get a good example of willing to yield how many times do we drive down the road and we have all those people that are lane cutters. You know, they 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 go way down to the very end and just jump in at the last minute, and they keep the line. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I kind of resist that. But there are times when you just have to be willing to yield and and back off. And uh, I'm not saying that they should uh, always let people in, but at the same time, is it worth getting into an accident over? So it's willing to yield. Full of mercy and good fruits, good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So notice that there are good fruits, there are good results from the right attitude of mind, of cleaning up the, the, the selfish attitudes that we as human beings have. Notice over in First Peter 2, 1 Peter 2. We'll begin in verse 11. He said, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. He's talking here about a way of life. He's talking about the language that we use, the way that we treat others, the things that cannot be hidden, not because we do it to be seen, other than the fact that we recognize that we, we don't do the opposite so that we won't be recognized. Sometimes people do the opposite because they don't want to be thought of as goody two-shoes or whatever it might be that way. But having your conduct, your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, or as by your behavior which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now let's continue there. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme. Notice it says, Therefore, because of this, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, in other words, the behavior that we have, the way that we follow the law, the way that we conduct ourselves in this world, In a righteous and godly way. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. So he talks here about doing good, and he talks about good works and the things that we do in that way. They may observe your good works by your good works which they observe. This is back in verse 12. They glorify God in the day of visitation. So again, it's for the sake of glorifying God, not the self. Let's go to Titus, the first chapter. Titus, the first chapter. I'm sorry, Titus, the second chapter. Titus 2, and we'll begin in verse 1. And here we see a way of life being described. He says, But as for you, verse 1, Titus 2, verse 1, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, talking about how they conduct themselves. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. To be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. So let's talk about how we conduct ourselves. It all begins with good conduct. Likewise, exhort, verse 6, the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Notice, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. is talking about how we conduct our lives. In doctrine, notice, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned that one who is... An opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. In other words, you take away the accusations because they can't find something in you that is, is wrong. It's like Daniel and, and uh, the, the, the men of Israel or men of Judah who are working for the king. They look for something, and the only thing they could find was the religion that they have. That's all that they could find. He says, exhort bond servants, verse 9, to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Not a lot of back talk or arguing, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our God, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself for himself, his own special people zealous for good works. You see, the context of some of these passages that talk about good works are talking about the way that we live our lives. Having integrity, not pilfering, not stealing. Conducting ourselves as women of God and as men of God. He says that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. And he tells Titus, Paul does, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. So we see that good works begin with good conduct, with godly conduct, with living by the laws of God. But is that where it ends? Do we just say, okay, we just live by the laws of God and and that's where it all ends? Or... Are we exposed, uh, supposed to do other things as well? Well, let's take a look at some practical works above just righteous living that we can read of in Scripture. Let's go to Acts, the ninth chapter, and we'll look at a few examples here, as well as admonitions, of uh, doing good works. Here's a very famous individual. I think most of you know where we're going here. Acts, the ninth chapter. And we'll begin in verse 36. It says, At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. No, she was full of good works. Now, that could be, in other words, the way that she lived her life. Or it could go beyond that. But then it says, And charitable deeds, which she did. So it's going beyond just living her own life in a righteous way, but she is doing charitable deeds. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room, and then they called for Peter. And in verse 39 it says, Then Peter arose and went with them. And when he came, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. So here was a woman who used her skills to make clothing for others, uh, tunics and who knows what else that they had, various garments, uh, which she had made while she was with them. So she spent time, in addition to living a godly life, that godly life went on to share her talents with others, to give to others. And I suppose that someone can do that for all the wrong reasons, but we don't get the impression here at all. She was doing it because it was a way of life for her, and it was helping and serving other individuals. Let's go back to First Timothy, First Timothy, the fifth chapter. It will begin in verse 9, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 9. Again, talking about widows in this case, it says, "...do not let a widow under sixty years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man." Now, here are qualifications. It says, "...well reported for good works." Well reported for good works. And then it describes these good works. It says, "...if she has brought up children..." Now, whether they be her own children or helping with other people's children, but it would probably be her own children. She's brought up. In other words, she dedicated herself to children. It's interesting. I was listening to the news just yesterday, and uh, it was a very interesting point that was brought out that the the uh, COVID uh, pandemic was really an eye opener for many parents because. As this individual was saying, uh, historically, uh, women took care of their children at home. But then over a period of time, over decades in time, women more and more worked outside the home. And, and the culture today is to tell women that they have to be outside the home, that they have to have a career, that they have to be a career woman. And so you have both husbands and wives working and somebody else taking care of the kids. And there was a time when the wives would be at the PTA meetings. I remember even my father would go to PTA meetings. In fact, he was the president or vice president, I forget, of the PTA when we lived over in England. Parent Teachers Association, I guess that's what it stands for. Uh, They were involved with their kids' education. And I know that at least my father was not always happy with the direction that education was going even back when I was in school. And he could see certain things then. But when you have both husbands and wives working and husbands having to share a lot of the responsibilities to take care of the household, the children were left to the teacher's. Everybody making the assumption that they're going off to learn math and science and history and English and maybe a foreign language, and then the pandemic came, and it was wake-up call to many parents across this country what the schools were teaching their children. And we have a new governor in in uh, what Virginia, uh, Yunkin. Because of that, he recognized that. This is, this is something. They're, they're teaching our kids all kinds of stuff that we don't want them to be taught. And they're finding books promoting transgenderism and everything else in the schools, in the libraries. And there's a whole cesspool out there of ideas that they're indoctrinating our children. So when it says bring up children, there, there's an important point there that for our ladies, we need to understand that yes, you can have your career, you can have a bigger house, you can have all these things, you can be, quote, fulfilled, but what's happening to our children? And it's important to think about those things. Very important. It's not wrong that a woman ever works. My wife's worked a little bit in our marriage. We didn't have children at the time. She worked part-time. But the church always came first. I remember when she worked for Sears. Uh, they was they were asking, they were looking for someone to work there, and, and it was late in the year, but uh, they do inventory in January, and they just said that, look, we have to have you in January, but that's when we had ministerial conferences, and she just made it clear that no, she had a greater priority there, and It would seem like she wouldn't get the job, but they took her anyway. And she knew how to at least dress appropriately for the job, conduct herself appropriately. And how many others are out there that, you know, have jobs and and work that? But when we have children, we have to consider what are they being taught while we are pawning them off to somebody else for eight hours a day or six hours a day, And then trying to undo everything in the evening. Now, this may not be popular with everybody. But even the world is waking up to realize we've got some problems in this country. And what our children are being taught. And you know what I always find is that everybody I've ever talked to, their school is different. Their school is a good school. The ones that their kids are going to. I, I don't ever recall meeting anybody that that whose kids went to one of these schools that are promoting all this stuff, and yet it's all out there. It's everywhere. Some are worse than others. There's no doubt about it. There are some that are still more conservative, and especially here in the South, I would imagine that we'd find them somewhat more conservative. But is Charlotte all that conservative when they had the bathroom bill here a few years ago where they were, you know, letting uh, – you know, Johnny, who thinks he's Susie today, go into the you know the other restroom. Um, you know, it's 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 not all conservative as we might think it is, not here in Charlotte area at least. Well, it says if she has raised children or brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet. If she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, then she could be brought into this uh, group of ladies that were there to serve in the church. So there are certain qualifications. And those things are going beyond just living a righteous life themselves. We see that lodging strangers. There's somebody that comes into town, somebody needs a place to stay, Willing to take somebody in in that sense. And when it says strangers, it doesn't necessarily mean just any Tom, Dick, and Harry off the street. Uh, it's, it's talking about, obviously, uh, with the church or whatever, uh, it might be that she's taken in people and helped them out. And sometimes that could be someone who is not, uh, in the church. It could be. It depends on the circumstance, of course. But we see those things that she is, uh, she has done, and those are works that go beyond just being a righteous individual. Notice, let's notice the sixth chapter of First Timothy, and verse seventeen. It says, "Command those who are rich in this present age, not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy." So don't just look to your own riches he says but verse 18 let them do good that they be rich in good works ready to give willing to share there are those who may not have a lot of time they may have different circumstances but they're able to share they're able to help out when someone is hurting when someone is in need i remember an evangelist there in Pasadena that was known for dropping off, you know, a bag of groceries on somebody's front porch, ring the doorbell and be gone, and dropping off and helping people out that he knew had, uh, you know, a different, you know, uh, maybe were going through a difficult time financially. By the way, that wasn't me because I wasn't an evangelist then. But um, this was, was somebody that he was just known for that always willing to help out when somebody had a need. He says, let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. It's talking about those who are rich, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life. So God is saying that there is a reward for those who give of themselves whatever it may be it may be your time it may be your talent it may be uh, financially uh maybe just a, a phone call to encourage somebody but there are different ways that we can do these things to help out notice titus the 3rd chapter titus 3 and verse 14 it says, "And let your people also learn to maintain good works." Okay, what are the good works in this context? To meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. To meet urgent needs. You know, urgent needs are. Um, have you ever noticed that whenever somebody needs something, it's always at a time that is not convenient for you. Has there ever been a time when it's convenient to serve? I guess that some people maybe just sit around there waiting for something to do. I don't think that there are many people like that. It's always inconvenient when somebody needs something, but it says meeting urgent needs. Scripture does not refer to good works in a worldly sense. A worldly sense is that carnal men crave the esteem of others. They crave the esteem of others. And when they do something, for example, whether it be, well, I won't mention names, but you have these very, very wealthy individuals who give millions of dollars to this charity or that charity. Do they hide those things? Do they do it anonymously or they do it with a lot of fanfare? In Matthew, the 23rd chapter, verse 5, Jesus took to task the scribes and the Pharisees of his day, recognizing that they did everything for the purpose of being seen. And in this particular case, it was to be seen in a religious context of doing physical things that would say, I'm very religious, I'm very righteous. Notice verse 5. It says, But all their works they do to be seen by men. That's the focus. Remember when Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven? The focus there is to do the right thing, to live a righteous way of life, and to do things that may be going beyond that, but to glorify God, not to glorify the self. But Jesus said that these individuals, the scribes, the Pharisees, were a pack of hypocrites because they did these things to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad, and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greeting in the marketplace and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. You know, we have people that are, I think, Oftentimes, well-meaning. I'll, I'll just mention it because I, I haven't seen this today. I hope I don't, because uh, I don't want to embarrass anybody. But at some point in time, you, you kind of have to explain to people. You know, the world shows that in order to be rel- if you're really a Christian, then then you wear a cross or some uh, instrument like that. Now that that is a symbol that you are a quoted Christian, of course. Madonna and all kinds of other people out there, uh, rock stars wear these things. I don't know why. I'm not sure exactly because I don't think they're very religious, but uh, religious people do, and they mean well. And I don't think I ever wore a cross growing up, but I, you know, I, I certainly, based on the way I grew up, it would have been very normal, except that my age the kids didn't do it. Maybe the girls did, but. It's a normal thing that people want to quote witness, and you see this on television with various individuals. But outward signs of religiosity, uh, physical things like that, we we go back to. Uh, sometimes we have people that want to wear um, tassels and and. Uh, use prayer shawls and various other things that they do to kind of be more Jewish, um, be more Old Testament. And yet those are the very things that Christ is condemning right here They make their phylacteries broad, and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best seats, places at the feast, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplaces, etc. So they are doing those things to be seen, whether it be as a physical way of life, or as doing good works, as we read there in book of Matthew, the 6th chapter, where uh, they, they make long prayers and, and so forth, uh, to be seen of men. Notice verse 29, Matthew 23, verse 29. He says, Woe you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. So he says, therefore your witnesses against yourselves, you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. He says, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Call them serpents, brood of vipers. When we think about it, these were the people that put to death Christ. Of course, our sins have put to death Christ as well. So they were doing these outward things. You know what we call it today? We call it virtue sig- signaling. Virtue signaling. We've got major corporations that virtue signal. Whatever the, the situation is that's hot out there right now, they jump on the bandwagon, whether it's global warming. Uh, please don't uh, be offended by it, but uh, Black Lives Matter was one of those cases. And I gave a sermon on the subject talking about it, how the people behind it are avowed Marxist. And now it's come out that all this millions of dollars that were thrown at them by these virtue signaling companies wanted to jump on the bandwagon you know, they spent millions of dollars on homes for the individuals that are the founders of it. They're being investigated. But that's just one of hundreds of things out there. And they get out there on Twitter and they make it sound like this is, this corporation is bad or whatever, so they, they just give in and they, they jump on the bandwagon. Virtue signaling. It's not from the heart not really trying to help anything, they're just trying to pay off so that they won't be looked on as being bad. So some girl writes an article about plastic straws and how they're killing turtles and they're doing all this sort of thing. And everybody jumps on the bandwagon, how many companies suddenly went to paper straws? And then they get a little bit wet and then you suck there and closes off. Well, thankfully, that seems to have died out. Uh, it seems like we've gone back to plastic straws. If they really wanted to save the environment, there are a lot of things they could do. Get rid of all the, you know, the, the plastic bottles. Isn't it amazing how we used to drink the water right out of the tap? They went through lead pipes and all that sort of thing, and I'm not promoting drinking out of lead pipes, but, you know, we used to do all those things, but now... People are afraid to drink anything that doesn't come out of a plastic bottle, not realizing that water is very corrosive. And we've all got plastic in our our systems right now, especially if those bottles get hot. And by the way, some like, um, what do they call it, sun tea. I was talking to someone who involved in in making these plastics and take these plastic milk jugs they're very good, very stable at cold temperatures, but when you heat them up, they're not so stable. So, use glass if you're gonna make sun tea. That's, for whatever it's worth. Uh, it's, it's much safer. But, we, we, we have all this virtue signaling. We have this young girl in Sweden, or wherever it was, goes to the UN, 16 years of age, and everybody jumps on the bandwagon, about global warming at that point in time. Who knows what the truth is about so many things, but there's so much virtue signaling in the world. And the point is that when we do things, it should be for the right reason. It should fill a real need, and it shouldn't just be virtue signaling. So let's address that a little bit. The term describes works that look good to people, but are in reality no more than self-serving. And corporations do this all the time. Not that their heart is in it. They just do it because they don't want the consequences of bad publicity otherwise. Sometimes we've had individuals who have worked at soup kitchens or food pantries, know a few people that worked at those for several years, and eventually they just came to the conclusion that, really they're not doing any good. It's the same people. They don't want to get off the street. They still want to drink and so forth. Is it wrong to do that? Of course not. But at the same time, we need to think, what am I really doing, and am I doing good by this, or am I just making myself feel good? Giving money to street beggars. If you want to do so, you can. But most of the time what they're going to do is just use that money for alcohol or drugs. You know, we have the Titus I say Titus, is that the right word? We have the um, we we have more jobs available right now than we've ever had, probably in this country. More openings. Maybe there have been other times that have been Better, but I don't remember any times you see help wanted everywhere. And yet we see more street beggars today than we've ever seen. You can't drive down the street, any major intersection. When we come here off of the 485 and get onto Providence Road, there's usually one or two there. And some of these individuals may truly be down and out. I don't know, but... You hear of other situations where a person has crutches, rides his bike to his corner, gets off, gets his crutches out there and collects his money. Or the fellow that I remember up in Canada, he would walk down by the cars that stopped at the the intersection, and he had this limp, and he'd get to the end and he'd walk back up just fine, but he had developed a limp. And yet, sometimes people just give them something because it makes them feel better. At the same time, if someone wants to do so, that's your business. If you really feel that that's the thing to do, please do it, if that's what you really think you need to do. But the point is that we need to think about what we're really doing. Saving the planet, carbon credits and carbon offsets, this is great virtue signaling and people feeling better about themselves. There's one uh, site here I went to. It says, to help reduce the impact of the carbon emissions we produce through these everyday activities, carbon offsets, uh, fund projects like deforestation, not D but reforestation, farm power, and landfill gas capture that removes carbon from the environment. But you go to that website, and it just seems like it's more about money because right up front, here's what you can do. Donate this. So if you fly in a plane and you've used a little bit too much carbon, well, now you can make yourself feel good by donating to some of these websites so that they can plant a tree. You know, when it comes to planting trees, you know who plants more trees than probably anybody else? You see, the, the lumber companies. Warehouse and these companies, they plant millions of trees on a regular basis because that's their future. They cut them down, they plant them. It's like pulling a carrot out of the ground and you plant another carrot so that down the road it just takes a little bit longer for a tree. But we have to think about who are we supporting and what are we doing and what's the purpose of good works. So we must ask, if we are to involve ourselves in a project, is there a benefit beyond us feeling good about ourselves? In Luke, the 18th chapter, we have an example, Luke 18. I I was reading the other day how this individual wants to spend all of his money. He's one of the wealthiest people in the world. He wants to spend it all before he dies, or he wants to give it away before he dies. And and that's noble. But he certainly makes a point of making you know when he gives something. But here's a a case in Luke eighteen and verse twenty two. this is the individual who came to Jesus in verse eighteen says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That was the question. What can I do that I may Inherit eternal life. What 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 thing, what good thing could I do? And then in verse 22, Jesus said, uh, when he heard these things, he asked him about keeping commandments. He said, well, all these things I've done from my youth. So Jesus heard, when he heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, we have to understand that this man's God was his wealth. He was coveting or lusting after physical things, and so God gave him this example here. He said, okay, you want to do one thing? That's what you're asking? Here's what you do. Sell it all and give it away. This was instruction regarding this man's character defect. We have an example, though, over in John the 12th chapter, John 12, where we have an individual whose motivation was not correct. We'll look at verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 5. Uh, actually, going back there a little bit, this woman came with this very costly oil of spikenard. And she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the gray, the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrance, fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? Now, that would, it's a day's wage, a denarii, approximately. So that's a year's wage. This was very costly and given to the poor. Notice he said... This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was in it. So his motivation was not right. But this was, again, on the surface, it was virtue signaling. He was saying, well, we need to give this to the poor. But he had a different motivation behind. Corporations just want certain people off their back. In this case, he wanted something out of the box. He wanted to take some of it. So, here was a situation where someone had a lot of something. It must have been very wealthy to own something like that. And she anointed the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said in verse 7, Let her alone. She's kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So, we're not going to solve all the problems of the poor in this day and age. But does that mean that we shouldn't think about the poor or care for the poor? We must not shut our eyes from genuine needs. For example, in James, the first chapter, James 1 and verse 27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So we are to do something. Uh, in, in this particular case, it's not spending money. Uh, well, it may cost you money to drive someplace. But he says to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. In other words, when they have needs, when there is something that is needed there. In some cases with an orphan, it may just be a father figure or a widow just needing some comfort, or just being lonely. And sometimes visiting a lonely widow may not always be the easiest thing to do. Some widows, yes, some, not so much. Uh, it says, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So, in other words, your conduct must be good as well. That's what pure and unfiled religion is. Let's, let's notice First John 3. 1 John 3. And verse 15, it says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So we are to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, verse 18, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. We also have the parable of the Good Samaritan. We've read that many times. And as I said earlier, there's almost never a convenient time to fill a need. So let's notice over in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, which really explains How to Handle Something. It says, Let nothing, verse 3, be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. So when an urgent need comes up, and we have our own needs, what do we do? Now, I suppose it depends on what the need is. If you've got a child that's needing to go to the doctor, uh, you don't just drop that. I guess it depends on what the situation is. Maybe there's a more pressing need. Your, your neighbor is dying of a heart attack, so uh, and your, your child just needs a checkup. So you have to look at that. But the point is you esteem others better than yourself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And it shows that the mind of Christ is what we are to have as well that Christ gave His life for us. And we have to look at that way. As I said, it's almost never convenient when something comes up. But if we're steaming others better than ourselves, what are we going to do? And we could turn over to Romans, the 12th chapter, where it speaks of doing it with cheerfulness. Romans 12, verses 6 to 8. I'll let you look that up on your own. I'd like to, to finish, though, with one passage of Scripture, and I'm not going to read it all. But I think this sums it up in Matthew, the 25th chapter. It talks about when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him. He's going to sit on the throne of His glory. This is verse 32 now, Matthew 25:32. It says, all the nations will be gathered to Him. He'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep and the goats. He'll set one on one side and one on the other. Then the king will say to those on his right side, Come, you blessed my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Now those were needs at the time. There were. It's, it's a parable, but it's, it's making a point here that when someone's hungry, they're hungry. When they're thirsty, they're thirsty. When they are a stranger and need a place to stay, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me, I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And they will say, the righteous will say to him, Well, Lord, when do we see you this way? We didn't see you hungry. We didn't see you thirsty or uh, needing something to drink. We didn't see you as a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you. Or when do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then it goes the opposite way. The point of the whole parable is, is this, that, that true Christianity, true good works are what we do every day. We we live a life of righteousness In other words, we live by the laws of God. We live different from the world. And that's going to be seen. You can't hide it. The only way you can hide it is to be like the world. And we don't do that. So we we live a certain way of life. And part of that way of life is fulfilling the needs of others when we see that as a real need. We don't shut our eyes from opportunities to help out, but at the same time, we don't just go out there and virtue signal by getting involved in some uh, massive program just for the sake of being seen. We don't start lobbying, which I don't think anybody did, for everybody to get rid of their plastic straws, as an example, a ridiculous one, but okay. Uh, we, We don't do that. We have to think about what we're doing and how we're spending our time, but what you really see there is, first of all, righteous conduct, and secondarily, filling a specific need that you see at the time. And it's usually never convenient. God has called us to do good works. And good works begin with an example of godly conduct. But good works are focused outwardly, not inwardly. They're focused toward glorifying God. As I said, it's rarely convenient to fill the needs of another. But good works are a way of life. It's the way that we live every day. And we do things that we don't think of as, oh, this is some grand gesture or some great thing. It is just the way that we are, the way that we live. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is a great time to practice this way of outgoing concern. There are going to be strangers there. There are going to be people who are there for the first time. There are going to be widows who are widows or widowers for the first time, the first time when they haven't had their mate with them. Or it may be the second or the tenth time. But there are those who we can reach out to and show outgoing concern to. And we're not doing it because we think it's some great, grand gesture. It's because that's the way that we should be. So we can do those things not only at the feast, but we can do them today, tomorrow, any day, and every day. So let's do good works that we may glorify our Father who is in heaven.